0: Well, um, today I am going to start talking about cultural diversity, cultural diversity. There are a lot of things that are taught in this nation, but they're not being taught from a biblical perspective. Amen. Amen. A lot of things are being taught in this nation, but they're not being taught from a biblical perspective. And some of you might be in a place in your life where you would rather go to the world to learn about certain things. But I believe the church is the place to learn about some of these things. Amen. And so I want to start talking a bit about cultural diversity. And it will take me a number of weeks to really go in-depth into this subject. Next week we'll have the ordination. It will be very, very powerful. Very powerful. You know what Pastor Chooks is like, okay? Um, Then I'll continue the following week uh, unpacking this thing called cultural diversity. The first thing I want to say to you, saints, is why should we study culture? Why should we actually study this subject? Your culture affects how you describe problems. There are some things in certain cultures, they're not a problem. But in other cultures, it's a problem. There are some things that are problematized by certain cultures and they're not problematized by other cultures. Amen. So, the culture you choose to have will determine how you describe problems and it will also determine how you view possibilities. Your culture will affect your level of joy because it's through your cultural lens that you will evaluate success or failure. There's some things that are deemed to be successful from a particular cultural lens, but unsuccessful. The same thing in a different, through a different lens. Are you hearing me this morning? We need to become conscious of how we learned behavior in order to unlearn it. For some of us, we do certain things because that's how we were brought up. But how many of you know that some of those things we have to start unlearning, especially when they're not kingdom We need to be conscious of the debilitating things in our culture and then eject them. And also we need to embrace the effective qualities in our cultures. The Bible tells us that therefore shall a man leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So you establish your own household and you say, there were these things my mom and dad did that I like and will embrace them. There were these things that they did stemming from their cultural lens. And you know what? I don't think it's useful for us or I don't think it's kingdom. So we're not embracing them. A lot of marital difficulties today stem from people wanting, oh, I want my husband to be like my father. In the TV show that we're shooting right now, we're doing eight hours of it. I was there for eight hours yesterday. Please pray for strength for me. But it was really interesting, especially when you see how that happens with a lot of couples where I want my wife to be like my mother and she wants me to be like her father. How many of you know that that becomes very confusing? Because very often we're not the same. Culture operates at different levels. Culture operates at a national level. So there's what we call national cultures especially in a lot of homogenous countries. A homogenous country is where almost everyone, maybe 80% of the people, are all from a particular culture. So nations like South Korea are quite homogenous in terms of the culture. Nations like Japan are quite homogenous in terms of the culture. Then you have other places where it's a heterogeneous culture. There's a lot of mixture that's there. For example, we talk about Brazil, and there are people who've come from many different places who happen to be in Brazil today. Amen. Are you hearing me? There's the United States, and within the United States, you've got a lot of subcultures, right? There's Hao Ting. How many feel there are a lot of subcultures within Hao Ting. So there's culture at a national level, but there's also culture at an organizational level. There's the Coca Cola culture, there's the Ned Bank culture, there's the ABSA culture. And great organizations have strong cultures, they've got a distinct way of doing things. You've got the GE culture, you've got the McDo- McDonald's culture, you've got the United Nations culture. Are you hearing me this morning? All right. So you've got culture at a national level. You've got culture at an organizational level. But you've also got culture at a family level. And so some people say, oh, Paul, so you're in a cross-cultural marriage. And I say every marriage is cross-cultural. I speak to a lot of people who are the same skin color as their spouses, the same chocolate brown color, for example. But you'll hear them saying, but I'm an SRB. I've got a strong rural background, but my wife grew up in the city and now we're clashing how many of you know that that's a cross-cultural situation cross-culture doesn't have to do with color it's got to do with different upbringing so don't think you've got the same culture as your husband when you grew up different it's not just um, you know sean and sunera different cultures because you can see one is indian and one is uh peach skinned amen When you dig deeper, and for those of us who counsel a lot of couples, we hear the things that emerge. And I hear people saying, yeah, but you know, my wife, ah, they were from a wealthy family and they grew up in the city, in the suburbs. But me, Paul, I'm from a strong rural background. And you can see it. And sometimes the cultural differences between those two individuals are far bigger than the cultural differences between two people of different skin color. Are you hearing me? So every family has a unique way of doing what it does. So these are the key thoughts of this message. Number one, we need to know the impact of culture on society. We need to understand how is the culture, the prevailing culture, impacting society. We need to know that. Number two, we are called to be clear about the culture we want. We're called to be clear about the culture that we want to establish. Amen. Amen. Number three, culture can be created, and we must know how to create it. Great leaders create culture. Culture doesn't just happen to you. You can create the culture you want. I can sit in my house and say, you know what, this is the culture I want to have. In fact, this morning I was talking to my wife about it, and we were just saying, my wife was saying to me, oh, I, last night I really enjoyed watching soccer with the boys. It's so healthy just talking to them about the game and them not playing computer. It's just really great. And then I was saying to her, yeah, you know what, I think it's a great culture to have. There are times when we're sitting in the lounge and I actually just want all of us to be engaged in the same thing and talking about it. That's a culture I want to create. Amen. Amen. What culture do you want to create in your family? Are you letting it happen to you or are you making it happen? Say to the person next to you, let's create culture. All right. Next, we must know that we are called to transform when We must know that we must know what we are called to transform and what is immaterial. This is very important. There are certain things we've been called to change in our culture, and there are certain things that are immaterial. In other words, God doesn't mind them. I mean, even that when Jesus came, He didn't say wear this type of fashion and not this type. Amen. Sometimes we like to do that in church, don't we? And then there's, the, there's a dress code for church, and everyone dresses the same. I don't know if you've seen, but sometimes I'll wear a three-piece suit at church. Other times I'll wear jeans. Right? And I do that sometimes so that people free feel free and feel comfortable to come in their own style. So sometimes I'm smart, casual, sometimes I'm very smart. I've got lots of suits because of the nature of the work I do. It's normal for me. I'm always coaching executives. I'm always speaking in different organizations. But if I'm going to the reserve bank and doing something where they dress smartly and where the men always wear ties, I adapt to that. But when I'm going to Nando's or Momentum or Outsurance, they're a bit more casual. In Nando's, the guys are in jeans all the time. Are you hearing me? It's called cultural agility. Being able to adjust because you want to get your message across. So you don't want how you are dressed or whatever your style is to end up being a block to people hearing you. But there's some people who are like, this is me and I'll always just be like that and it doesn't matter. You can do that, but just remember that you might might hinder your message from getting across. Come on now, there was a church... Uh, in the United States by the coast somewhere. And the whole eldership, they were dressed like in, in suits. They were like the black suit brigade. But the people who were attending the church were like your surfer type of people on the coast. How many of you know that there was a big difference, a big clash, like culture clash between the leaders and the people coming to church? cultural agility. We must know what we need to change, what we need to transform in society, and what's okay. What is a cultural expression that's actually fine? And that's where diversity kicks in. Amen? And we must be careful, and this is actually my next point, we must suspend judgment and seek understanding. We must what? We must suspend judgment and seek understanding. In other words, we must be what I call culturally curious. So when you see a certain cultural practice, not to be quick to judge. Because very often those judgments aren't based on the word of God. Very often the judgments we make are based on how we were raised. And sometimes we have this superiority complex about us where we just think, well, the way I was raised was better. And you can see the people who are well-traveled and the people who aren't. Because well, the people who are well-traveled have seen different ways of doing things. The people who don't travel and don't mingle with other people struggle with what we call enculturation. What is enculturation? Enculturation is where you only, you only become aware of your own culture when you interface with another culture. You only become aware of the air that you breathe when you go into another atmosphere. When you're now climbing Everest and you're now struggling, then you're now like, oh, okay, You know, what? there's this thing called oxygen that I actually need. But how many of you thought about air this morning? How many of you, when we were doing praise and worship, thought to yourself, like, oh, I'm breathing in oxygen. Hmm. I'm breathing out carbon dioxide. We're not culturally conscious until we interface with other cultures. I can often tell South Africans who've traveled. You can see the guys who've done the eight-year stint in London. By the way, when South Africans go to London, they're not just interfacing with British people. They're interfacing with lots of different cultures. Amen. Why am I saying all of this? We can pray as much as we want for breakthrough to say, God, may we plant churches, may we establish churches. But if we're not culturally agile, we'll do stupid things that chase people away. Amen? So we must be culturally agile. So that's why we must study culture. The second thing I want to highlight to you this morning. Uh, I want to define culture a little bit. It's basically, this is what culture is. It's your values, your beliefs, and your norms. That's what culture is. Your values, your beliefs, and your norms. It's the way things are done around here. That's what culture is. Put simply, how we do what we do. How we do what we do. And it can be created by design or by default. I like, there's a guy called Edgar Schein, and he, he's got an interesting definition of it. He says, It's the set of shared, taken for granted, implicit assumptions that a group holds and that determines how it perceives, thinks about, and reacts to its environments. It's the set of shared, taken for granted, implicit assumptions that a group holds and that determines how it perceives, thinks, about and reacts to its environments okay and culture operates at three levels you have firstly the surface features of culture that's how people dress we know there's a way people dress in holland right there are certain types of shoes that they wear in holland it's the foods people like and what they eat okay those are surface features of culture it's what you see in their art forms and artworks. it's why people as tourists go to certain places okay so that's the surface feature the second dimension of culture or second layer is to do with what what is known as the pre-conscious factors the things people do but they're not conscious of Alright? It's the symbols. It's the norms. It's the ideology. It's how we see men treating women. How we see women and men treating their parents. And we see that culturally, don't we? But then there's a third dimension of culture, sometimes known as the deeper structure, or worldviews. And very often you don't see these very clearly. So you can have two individuals dressed in the same way, but their worldview is very different. These are basic assumptions. These are worldviews. These are cognitive and logical systems. And we're going to go deep into this to really unpack so that you can actually diagnose what is my culture. Because you see, what I've found is some people will come to church and they say they're Christians. And as a pastor, I can say, well, as you get married, this is the process. This is what you would need to do. But for someone who's still operating through their cultural lens, not at the surface level. So I'm not talking about dress code. I'm not talking about uh, the art forms you prefer. But in terms of the worldview, the deeper structures, the logical systems, you might find, for example, someone who's from a traditional African worldview, they might say, yeah, pastor, I know you said this, but we've decided to do that. Then I say, why are you doing that? And they might say, no, our auntie said this is what we should do. Because this is how we do it in our families. Now, how many of you know that in the traditional African worldview, we know what we know. That's called your epistemology. We know what we know, not based on the word of God, but based on the wisdom of the fathers. Are you hearing me? But when you become a Christian, the word comes first. And then you're able to go back and say, yes, auntie, I know you said this, but it's in conflict with the word of God. I'm fine with this practice and this song choice and this will be great when we have our wedding. But concerning this aspect, uh uh-uh, we go to the word of God. I'm fine with the surface features of our cultural expressions, but this ideology I disagree with. Are you hearing me? When you're a true Christian, you go by the word of God. That's how we know what we know. So... We are always interfacing between what is the word of God saying in terms of practice and what are the cultural norms. And I'm telling you that there's a battle for the mind right now. And when we're talking about culture today in South Africa, we're not just talking about the traditional African worldview. We might be talking about what's the cultural norm in terms of what people do in your industry. So we've got a number of professional musicians in this church okay the number of you poor, desire and others you know where that's their that's their livelihood right they have to say what is kingdom culture in terms of what i do with my music and how is that counter culture how is it coming against the prevailing culture and the prevailing norm in my industry amen So there are things in the prevailing cultural mindsets around us that are unbiblical and they need to be challenged. There are other things that are amoral. Not immoral, but amoral. They're neither right nor wrong. And these need to be understood. They need to be understood. Right? There are also other aspects of culture that are just preferences. These people prefer to do things this way. Right? These must not be treated as sinful just because we view them from an ethnocentric perspective. Sadly, I said earlier on, many of us release judgments that aren't based on the word of God. They're just based on our preferences. Be very careful about that. Be very careful about the judgments that you release. With the same measure, you judge another person, you'll be judged. What judgments do we make? I hear a lot of people saying, it's crazy. Look how they do it. I'm like, the Bible doesn't say you can't do it that way. So why are you judging it? The reason you're judging it is you think you're superior to them and that how you were brought up is the best way and somehow you're better period that's what it is amen Amen. when Jesus came he spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom he spent a lot of time establishing kingdom culture he was basically imparting a kingdom culture in the context of an existing culture he didn't come in and say the kingdom of God is like this we don't wear our robes like this we wear the robes like that he didn't do that he didn't address surface features of the culture in the context of the culture he came in and he says you know what i want to challenge the way you guys do leadership there's the way the world does leadership but there's the way the kingdom does leadership amen those were the things he challenged and what i found is that a lot of christians are very selective about what they choose in terms of kingdom culture have you noticed that it's like, yeah, 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 no, this, these aspects of the kingdom will embrace. But then you look at the leadership style and it's not kingdom, yet it's stipulated in scripture. All right? So I'll give you an example of that. In Matthew 20, verse 25 to 28, it says, you know that, this is Jesus speaking, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. That's a leadership style, isn't it? A very dictatorial, autocratic leadership style. Amen. Amen. How many of you have seen this in the church? Can you see that sometimes our culture then becomes selective? Because we, Jesus says this and some people just ignore it. And there's some people in the congregation who think that their pastors will be boosted if they treat their pastors this way. But some of us stand up and we say, no, this is, this is not leadership. Right? Right? Jesus specifically says, it will not be so among you. He says, it will not be so among you. Sometimes we have to sit down with our children and they say, but those guys in that family do that. And those people, my friends, and their parents do that. And sometimes we have to say to them what? It shall not be so amongst you. Amen? There's certain language that's not swearing. There's certain language that's not really swearing, but it's close. And it's not entertained in my household. Amen? And I'm very strict about it. Why? It shall not be so amongst us. There's a culture that we want to create. Then Jesus says, but whoever wishes to be great among you. How many of you want to be great? Nothing wrong with greatness, folks whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave just as the son of man came not to be served but to serve in other words he's using himself as an example why? one of the ways we create culture is through what we model and Jesus is basically saying you're not seeing me doing that are you? no? but I'm the son of man aren't I? yes? so just be like me amen Amen. people will do what they see you doing that's just an example in scripture where we see jesus creating culture the third thing i want to say to you this morning is there's a way you can diagnose your culture and i want to give you 14 things that you can do to figure out what your culture is number one what beliefs are strongly held in your family in your household what beliefs strongly held number two how do parents or leaders teach children or employees in the workplace to behave in this church if you want to diagnose the culture of this church well how are the leaders teaching people to behave number three what do people regard as major sins what's seen as a no-no in a lot of churches and a lot of businesses the thing that is seen as a major no-no God hasn't got a problem with it isn't it funny Sometimes the things we think are the greatest of sins in the Bible aren't even recorded as a sin. But that's what you'll find pastors focusing on their whole lives, their whole ministry on that particular thing. Amen? I don't know about you, but I want to be burdened by the things that burden the Lord. And the things that are immaterial to God, I don't want to dwell on. Number four, what do people do in crisis? In times where there's a crisis, where do people run? That's where you see the culture. I see it amongst Christians. I s- you see it in churches. Where some people will be saying, oh, you know what, pastor, yes, we're with you. Yes, no, ah, everything is fine. Then the moment they experience crisis, where do they run to? That says something about the cultural mindset. Amen. All right? If you're in a situation where you're saying, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, But the moment you are desperate and in trouble, you run to some witch doctor. You run to some sangoma. It tells me something about your culture, your cultural mindset, where you really believe the power is. Amen? Number five, what rituals do people perform? Number six, what are the greatest fears that people have? That says something about the culture. Number seven, who are the trendsetters? So who are the cultural heroes? Who are the people that are praised? How many of you know that if we want to create an evangelistic culture in this church, we need to start measuring how many people are being saved. We need to start talking about it. We need to start having testimonies around it. We need to create rituals around evangelism if we want a culture of evangelism. Amen? Number nine, what is expressed in the art forms of the people? You know, you have certain cultures, for example, you know, those, uh, you know, in ancient Greece, etc. And you'll have all those naked guys, you know, and we're all fine with it. And our kids are like, oh, why do they always show that? And our, our kids are like b- baffled by it. Because if someone just paints a picture of some naked dude like that where everything is showing, would have an issue with it. But with all these statues, you know, people are now tourists and it's like, oh, ooh, ooh. but you know that that speaks that those art forms speak of the culture of the day. And what was going on if you think about those societies where they would have certain deities that they worshipped and idolized and they would have temple prostitutes right and there were a lot of rituals around sex and sexuality of course it will end up coming out in the art forms amen number 10 what aspects of the culture are most resistant to change what are those things about your culture with your friends your relatives that they resist when you challenge them about it it's like uh-uh, we cannot do that i've had certain messages i've preached here in this place and sometimes the the reaction afterwards from certain people i'll be saying to myself Why was the reaction so strong? Why was what I said triggering this person so much? I remember one time I preached a message and I was just talking about the extortion that happens with Lobola nowadays. And we know that. A lot of people are struggling to get married just because of the amounts of money they need to pay. And I was just sharing that and everyone knows that. I remember a guy who had been in the church for some time and so on came to me afterwards and he was so irritated and was like, it's like, it's like you're just speaking against the whole thing and so on. And soon after that, left the church. I'm thinking, why is that statement, which we know is factually true, where children today aren't being set up for greatness? We know that where people who want to get married like yesterday are struggling to get married because they want to start a life together, but they also have to raise a lot of money. And now I'm addressing the extortion that is happening. Why would someone react so strongly? It says something about the cultural mindset. Amen? What are considered to be the words of wisdom in that culture? On what do people spend money? Where does the money go? Come on now. In this country, a lot of money is invested in death. Have you noticed that? If you want to make lots of money in this country, you know, go into the funeral services business. But you know know the reason behind that. Why does a lot of money go? People say, no, I want to give my father a good, you know, dignified burial. Yes, there's that aspect. But good marketers play on that. Because a lot of people who've come from an ancestral background also have this whole fear of if we don't do things properly and don't have an expensive funeral, you never know what might happen. It's true. I've had a grandmother, I remember my, one of my grandmothers once saying, like, you guys, you're saying you're not into this ancestral stuff and you're disrespecting that, you'll see what will happen. If you continue like that, you'll see when I die. You'll see what will happen to you. I've also had that. <laughs> okay. And the people who are afraid of that are then controlled by it. What is rewarded and celebrated the most? What is rewarded and celebrated the most? In your family, amongst your children, is it Jesus who is worshipped and lifted up? Or is it their favorite soccer star? Number 14, who is feared and respected the most? Who is feared and respected the most? That says something about the culture. Are you getting this this morning? All right? So you will see that your answers to these questions result in what we call cultural mapping, where cultures are different based on various factors. So you can actually map the world. In two weeks time, I'll talk about this in depth, right? There's some cultures that will emphasize freedom, where there's free speech and you can say whatever you want, and there are other cultures that will emphasize respect, and we see both of those characteristics in scripture. So we can't just say, no, so that culture is better than the other. Can you see that? Because I will take you through the word and I will show you scriptures that show that we must speak freely and we must be bold. Do you remember when Paul the apostle said, you know, to the king or the emperor, you know what? Well, who should we, who should we listen to? God or you? But he did so respectfully. Amen? And that's the tension we experience as Bible-believing Christians. There are also certain cultures that are high context and others are low context. And that, that manifests in how we communicate with each other. So if you go to a high context culture like the Arab world, I remember an old friend of mine going there and he had one of his guys, business partners, and they were doing some business with an Arab sheik over there. And his, this friend of mine, his business partner, always wanted to bring out the contract. You know those people who want to like sign things, have everything in writing immediately. That's low context, right? If it's not in writing, it doesn't exist. And this friend who was culturally intelligent said, you know what, just wait, just wait. And this Arab sheikh would take them around, show them this, get to know them better. And then after a couple of days, just said to one of his minions, you know what, sign with these guys, I like them. That's high context. One of the lowest context countries is Germany, for example. So if you're doing business in Germany, you know, you go and you get down to business quickly, right? Now, it's important to understand that, because you might come from a very high-context background where it's about the relationship and knowing each other, and you might feel this is very biblical. Then you're now doing business with a German person, then you're offended, and you end up sinning because the person went down to business quickly. Are you hearing me this morning? It's important that as Christians, we're culturally agile, and we understand some of these differences. Some cultures are rigid, some are flexible. Some cultures focus on rules. These are the rules, this is how everything works. Others focus on self government. I'm going to show you if you look at different queuing systems in different countries, that's when you see it. There's a way in which people in the UK queue, and it's very orderly, very organized. And I remember seeing an image, I think it was of Venezuela, right? And the queues there, and you just see it's like, huh, what's happening? It's like just this crowd. But they kind of know who's behind who all right and there's another interesting image i saw i must show it to you guys the people are queuing but they're actually all sitting down and then you just see these rows of shoes right in line and basically what they do was like they took their shoes off and you just place them there and the shoes are doing the queuing and then you're just sitting wherever you want to sit okay and that's why a lot of people struggle because they'll come to a nation like this and they'll be like these guys are very disorganized So you have cultures that are different with regards to these things. I was with a friend of mine from, um, he's been in in Berlin, actually, pastoring a church there. And he's been there for, uh, I think, over 10 years now. And uh, it's so interesting because we were having dinner together. And he said to the waiter, is it possible for you to give me this particular meal but instead of the meat being 200 grams is it okay can you make it 300 and you could see like he was really asking to see if they can adjust things a bit and the guy was like of course and i said to this friend of mine this isn't germany bro Like, you know, the German thing of rules and regulations has really kicked in. And he says, and we laughed about it. And he said to me, it's so true, Paul, because there was a time when I went somewhere and the lady had all the ingredients to make a particular thing. And I asked her for that. And she looked at me funny like, it's not on the menu. He says, yeah, but you've got that ingredient. Can you make this? But it's not on the menu. (laughs) So It's not on the menu. We can't do it. All right. So some of you have interacted with people like that. You have some cultures that are very measured, where people don't express themselves, you know, using their hands and so on. But you have a lot of the continental cultures, you know, your Portuguese, your Spanish, you know, where people talk with their hands, you know, or your Italians, you know, italiano, right? That kind of thing. You've got some that are bold cultures, some that are very expressive, but others that are more reserved. Right, And you see both in scripture. That's what I want to show you. You see both in scripture. You have some cultures where they're very clear, and wait for it, they're very clear gender roles. And in other cultures, they're not. And this is, this is where it becomes very interesting. Because if you've got a son, what will you do if your son says he wants to go and do ballet? Many of us culturally will be like, "Eh, eh, eh." but the Bible doesn't say men can't do ballet. But some of us will be like, hey, guys, mm." where does that come from? Then you have other cultures where the roles are very super distinct. Men do this, women, yeah. And then you now have someone who's not wired like that a girl who's not wired like that, a girl who wants to be a diesel Mac. And she ends up forsaking something she would have been really brilliant at because of how she's been raised culturally. But there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't be a diesel Mac if you're a female. Are you hearing me this morning? I'm trying to help you to come to a place where you actually say, what I am doing, how much of it is based on the word of God and how much of it is based on my cultural lens? I want to raise my children to be strong and expressive, to be able to speak their minds. So very often when we're having a meal, I like to hear their opinions, and I think it's great. It's wonderful. But a few days ago, they corrected my English. There was something I had said, and then one of them was like, oh, dad, you're not supposed to say it that way. And then the others joined, and yeah, no, it doesn't sound good. Yeah, when you say it that way... And I found something within me saying, okay, I I don't even remember speaking to my father this way. (laughs) But are you hearing what I'm saying? But I want them to be expressive because I don't want them one day when their boss is doing the wrong thing to be like, hey, but it's my boss. I can't say anything. And it starts at home. Often when I coach people who are raised in families where they were told children must be seen, not heard... You see the same role playing out. They're now sitting uh, on an, an exco, a manco in the workplace, and they'll just look and just stare and wait for their boss to speak, and then they become like a messenger. You know those people, like you know, like a postman, just deliver the message and so on, never question anything. Then the boss complains to me and says this person isn't adding value. That's because they were raised in a particular way. They're transferring it now to the workplace, and they've never questioned it. So I want my kids to be expressive, to speak their mind, but I want them to learn to do so respectfully. So yesterday, one of my sons, I had r- arrived from, my, from eight hours of TV shooting, right? And I'm kind of thinking, ah, oh, I'm landing now. And then I start seeing what's happening. I'm seeing like soccer highlights and I'm seeing the French game and so on. And then Griezmann scores and I'm like, ah, oh, Griezmann. And I'm kind of shouting and I'm happy. I'm just relaxed. And one of my boys basically rebukes me, like for making too much noise. Hey, Dad. (laughs) Ooh, it triggered me. It triggered me. And I had to process for I was like (laughs) (laughs) And I said to this boy, I said, my friend, you're only 10 years old. Now you know which one it is, (laughs) the the middle one. (laughs) You're only 10 years old. Don't speak to me like that. And I said a lot of other very strong things to him. Very, very strong things. And he, and he apologized. The point I'm making is I want them to be expressive, but they need to learn to do it respectfully. Amen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To what extent are your answers to this cultural diagnosis in line with the culture you see demonstrated in the kingdom of God? That's what we need to do. Is the Bible silent on some of these things that we're so passionate about? To what extent does does your culture go against best practice? There's certain things that we do culturally that will make us a failure in business. There's certain things that we do culturally that will make us useless at farming. I've got friends, uh, farmers, who used to teach people in the community how to farm, and they said, "Paul, we had to deal with the cultural mindset because the cultural mindset didn't value time, and timekeeping." But how many of you know that if you just decide, like, I ah, know it, it, it's time to sow seed, eh? yeah, it's time to sow seed, ah, but no, we'll do it two weeks later. How many of you know that in farming that doesn't work? How many of you know that um, you could be from a cultural background? That's into, some people call it black man's time, some people call it African time, whatever you want to call it, right? But I'm mean, going you know that if you're trying to do business at a global level and you pitch up 10 minutes late, that German guy might have already left and you lose the deal. And you can't just say, but no, in my culture, we must be more flexible. You can't just say, ah, but when I grew up, I grew up in an environment where we didn't even have wristwatches. We'll just say, guys, yeah, we'll go to the wedding when the sun starts to get warm a direct translation from where I come from there's an interesting term called kumadziyazua it's basically when the Sun starts to get warm that's when it will happen <laughs> okay so some people will pitch up at nine others at half ten in fact what often happens is people kind of just know they kind of have you know you have these weddings where it's almost like someone else was given a memo in terms of when to come It's like there's a whole group of people that know the right time to come. So some people will pitch up at exactly 10 o'clock. Then you see this group coming at half past 11. It's like, how do they know? Do you know how they knew? They're from a high context culture where you can do what I think the Japanese call it reading the air. Where you actually know, you can actually read the air, signs, signals, and you just kind of like know what to do. That happens in high context cultures in low context cultures everything is in writing this is the deadline and it's and we'll do what we said we will do that was in writing and if it's not in writing then we didn't really agree that's the mindset in low context cultures okay come on we you know guys when you have baby showers you know my wife has got this thing when they're baby showers and what's the other one uh bridal showers and so on she kind of now knows like if she's invited to speak at one and so on like what time is it starting then she kind of knows when to pitch up maybe an hour and a half into it and so on that's when it's really going okay if we don't understand these things we will be very annoyed and we will be highly strung all the time all national cultures need to be measured against the word of god Your culture is not an excuse for disobeying God's word. Ultimately, one day, we will all yield to God's dominion and authority. And this is powerfully displayed in the book of the Revelation and also in the book of Daniel. Have a look at the Revelation. Chapter 11, verse 15. It says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world... Has become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever. How many of you know that God is gonna take over? God is gonna take over, and ultimately there'll be a yielding to his authority and his dominion. And I believe that we are called to transform society with kingdom thinking and kingdom culture. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 to 37, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the greatest emperors, right? In terms of history and look what he ends up saying and I believe there's a picture of what's gonna end up happening but the, at the end of that period I Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me right God had allowed him to basically go a bit um, crazy he says and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever For his dominion, I love this, is an everlasting dominion. Go with this type of boldness when you go into the marketplace. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. This is the greatest emperor saying this. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me. See, God is the one who can turn the hearts of kings. My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty. Who reestablished him? God. And in my sovereignty sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. By who? God. He's the one who allows it. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride i'm telling you right now there will come a time where every knee shall bow every tongue confess that jesus is lord they can either choose to do so willingly today or acknowledge it one day when they see that he is lord so don't get too caught up about trying to be pc about everything in this nation and so on and be intimidated by all these authorities god has allowed them to be there amen that's his power and, um, and I love that. Number four, what is the relationship between the church and culture? This is super important. There's a guy called Richard Niebuhr. Uh, he was a prominent ethicist. That's a guy who deals with ethics in the 20th century. Uh, he was also a, a theologian. And he wrote Christ and Culture in 1951. And it basically outlines five paradigms which churches have in how they relate with culture. Five paradigms. And when I show you this, you will see how, why you sometimes argue with other Christians. Okay? Watch this. Number one, he spoke about Christ against culture. That's one way of looking at it. And just decide after I share with you these five, which are you. I'll share with you what our stance is as a church. Okay? But there's Christ against culture. This is where you live in sharp contrast to society. All right? Completely different to society. You dress differently. And often that translates to weirdly. Okay? Let's just be honest. Uh, We are Christians, so we, 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 we just won't be fashionable, won't look nice. Like, you know, we're just different. That's the world, and we're just different. You know what I'm talking about, huh? None of you here, but I'm talking about some Christians. Okay? You withdraw from the world. Okay? Because your mindset is the effects of the fall are on everything. And so you decide, let me create my own cultural expression. So in other words, in church settings, we can't actually have cool, funky, modern dancing. It becomes a thing where we all just do the charismatic can-can. You know, we're trying to be different. Like, oh, that's evil. This is good. You know the Christians I'm talking about, huh? Okay. Number two, we then have the Christ of culture. The Christ of culture. This is the other end of the spectrum. This is the mindset that says, if the culture says it's a good thing, then it's good. And we end up going by the social norm. So you hear people saying, yeah, but culture can change. Yeah, I know in the old days, you know, you guys were very traditional and things were done properly, but things are changing now. So we'll just live together before we are married. It's okay, because that's now the new cultural norm. Mom, dad, you guys are being archaic. You know the mindset I'm talking about, right? And those are two extremes, and they're not useful, are they? They're not useful. Because if you're a good poet, and you're anointed by God, and you're very good at rapping, for example, you'll then say, rapping is evil, so I won't rap. Even if rapping for Jesus, mm, I can't associate rap music with saying good things about Jesus. So that's there. That's a mindset. Oh, gospel music. But gospel music can't have an RMB beat. No, 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 it's not really good. Hey, because because those RMB guys they're evil and oh, oh oh no, gospel music must have organ music only. Come on now, you know the churches where it's like you know guitars. When some of the charismatic churches started in a country north of us, people would say those are the guitar churches. You know, that they were associated with guitar music. And somehow this mindset of like oh if it's that then it's the world okay number three there's Christ above culture Christ above culture and this is a mindset that's really associated with the guy called Thomas Aquinas some of you might remember Thomas Aquinas right Um, this is the mindset that basically says being good as an artist being good as a mechanic or a doctor has nothing to do with being a Christian right It's Christ above culture. There's your Christian faith, and then there's the other stuff. And the positive in that is that it helps Christians to realize that I still have to study mechanics if I want to be a good mechanic. I'm not automatically going to become a good mechanic just because I'm now a Christian. The downside of this outlook is that it almost has a mindset that says your spiritual regeneration will not impact all of life. Can you see the downside there? Then the fourth is the Christ and culture paradox. And this is the two kingdom approach. And Martin Luther was known for this. This is where there's a radical distinction between culture and the Christian life. So in your secular role, so-called secular role, then the cultural norms kick in and how they teach what they teach. But then in your so-called sacred life, then kingdom values apply. And then there's always this tension and this mindset that you know what this tension will be there for the rest of our lives and will only be resolved when we're in heaven which isn't always that useful the fifth one which i lean towards but there are pros and cons of each one of these all right is what we call christ transforming culture christ transforming culture so this is the transformationist paradigm right This is where we have a mindset where we say, um, there is good in all things that are in created order, but it won't be perfect for now. Okay, This is where we see all of life being renewed and restored by God. This is where we believe, you know what, we can go into government and make a difference. We can be a Christian politician. right and that's okay as opposed to the other mindset that says like politics that's evil if you're a Christian mm, you can't even be there can you see how these work on a continuum and Calvin was actually strong on this by the way I'm not a Calvinist but Calvin was strong on this right and it's the mindset that basically uh, helps you to have a reformed theology where you're able to actually say you know what let me bring kingdom into this in order to transform it because God is sovereign, God is mighty, and He's taking over. Now, we there's a continuum, isn't there? Because there's some Christians, let's say, let's talk about politics. There's some Christians who will say, you know what? Let's form our own Christian political party. That's the best route. Because we can't mix with these other guys and then influence them. Then there are others who will say, you know what? Christians, politics, the two don't go hand in hand. Let's just pray that all these people get saved. It's only if they get saved spiritually, then maybe the transformation will happen. Then there are others who are on another extreme who will actually say, "Mm, Christianity and government, these these guys are so corrupt, it's evil. Let's not even get involved or talk about politics. Let's just focus on the church. Can you see the differences? And we argue about these things because we see them through different cultural lenses what do i believe i believe that god wants to transform all of life i believe that we have a message in the business world we have a message in the world of the arts that we need to take there and we need to role model and lead in those environments i believe that if people like william wilberforce as we were talking with Kotso the other day. William Wilberforce was actually uh, mentored a little bit by John Newton. I think it was John Newton. And uh, John Newton advised him, said, don't become a pastor. Rather, stay doing what you're doing. And he's the guy who led the abolition of slavery, right? But he was radical. He was radical as a believer. Can you see that your cultural lens and your outlook and your worldview will affect what you decide to do? You know, there's so many people who would become brilliant statesmen, but the moment they get born again and love Jesus, they decide, like, the only way of expressing that is, let me be a pastor. And then they become ineffective in the world. Not for that. Amen. All right? So think through what your stance is. Think through what your stance is. The view you have affects what you believe is your mission. Some Christians will stay out of politics because of their paradigm, whilst others will only pray for politicians to be saved, whilst others will still go the route of joining existing parties, whilst others will start their own political parties, untainted, inverted commas, by the world. Some Christians, for example, who are strong in reforming and transforming the world will say, we also want a booth at Sexpo. You know, like Pastor Chuck said uh, the, the one time, we also want a booth at Sexpo. Why should the world be leading when it comes to all these sex things? We want to teach them the right way of doing it. Now, there are other Christians on the other extreme who might say, no, 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 don't use the world's platform for that. Don't be seen there. What will people think of you? And they only teach those things in the church to Christians who are, but it's like preaching to the choir. It's mindsets. Some Christian artists some Christian artists will perform any type of music in order to transform the industry, whilst others will have a strong stance that we should only perform gospel music. What's your stance? Sadly, sometimes they can become very judgmental. Have you noticed that? They can become very judgmental now, where they'll say, this person says he's a Christian musician, but I didn't hear the name of Jesus mentioned in his song. Huh? And I'm saying to myself, surely you can sing a song that comes from the biblical Christian worldview that ends up transforming society and ministering very deeply to people. Amen? Amen. Let me give an example of such a song. Do you guys remember Whitney Houston's song, Your Love is My Love? Let me read to you some of the words. And can you tell me what perspective is this song coming from and what does it do for a marriage imagine i'm singing it to my wife or you're singing it to your husband okay she says if tomorrow is judgment day you guys know the song right your love is my love and my love is your love that one right if tomorrow is judgment day and i'm standing on the front line in other words accountability to god right and the lord asks me what i did with my life i will say i spent it with you Imagine your spouse, guys, singing this to you. They might not sing it like Whitney does, but imagine they're saying, If I wake up in World War III, I see destruction and poverty. And I feel like I want to go home. It's okay if you're coming with me. Because your love is my love, and my love is your love. It would take an eternity to break us. This is very powerful. This is speaking about till death do, do us part. This is speaking about Fidelity. Right? And the chains of Amistad couldn't hold us. Remember Amistad, the slave ship, and so on? Go and read up the story, okay? The slave ship where the slaves broke away from it, okay? They'd gone to Cuba, etc. Right? The chains of Amistad couldn't hold us because your love is my love and my love is your love. It would take an eternity to break us, and the chains of Amistad couldn't hold us. Ladies, it's Father's Day. If you've got a dude in your life, just, you know, play it for him. Don't try and sing it. you might, uh, might not be a blessing. <laughs> I'm going to play this for my wife later on. Okay? If I lose my fame and fortune, Whitney had bucks. She had cash, right? If I lose my fame and fortune, really don't matter. And I'm homeless on the street, in riches or in... Right, and I'm homeless on the street, on the street, Lord, and I'm sleeping in Grand Central Station. It's fine. It's okay if you're sleeping with me. Isn't that beautiful? She's not saying Hallelujah, Jesus. Korabashende. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you prefer songs that have got bad doctrine in them, just because the guy says Korrabashande at the end, then you're like, ah no, this is very spiritual. Even though the things are not in line with the word of God. (laughs) Okay. For me, I can listen to a song like this and it will make, and it brings me closer to my wife. Finally, number five, what does the Bible say about our relationship with the prevailing culture of the day? And I want to show you scriptural evidence that we're called to transform culture. We're called to influence and to redeem the culture of the day. John 17 verse 14 to 17 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. This is for those Christians who want to leave the world. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, guys, I understand that some people who've been in the world are very sensitive about these things. You know what I mean? If you've been in the world and you've just been singing rude music in the world, sometimes you have to have a season where you break away completely from it. But if God has still gifted you in that way, you can bounce back and start doing it for him and to his glory. As opposed to, oh, I'm now a holy person just because I don't rap for Jesus. I don't rap. No, God isn't looking at you and thinking, you're so holy, you're so holy. He's thinking that's a wasted gift, it's a wasted talent. Okay? Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing wrong with fame if your motive as a Christian is to be famous for Jesus. Don't shy away from it. If your motive is to be famous for Jesus, to make Jesus known in places where he's unknown, there's nothing wrong with it. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine. In a little corner, no. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. You know what the problem with a lot of Christians is? They say, I want to be a famous actor or actress for Jesus. So I'm shining for Jesus. But here's the problem. People aren't seeing the good works. The reason we shine is so that they see the good works, not the bad works. You can't say, I'm now famous for Jesus, but you're backsliding the more famous you get. Which is what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of Christian celebrities backsliding. And the world isn't knowing their good works. The world is knowing their bad works. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your father who's in heaven. Titus 2 verse 6 to 7. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. That's culture. That's how we behave. With purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. We must transform our culture. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh, which war against your soul. Conduct yourself with such honor, among who? Among the Gentiles, that though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as the supreme authority. Can you see what it's saying? We must stand out with a strong kingdom culture so that people want to be like us. Simple as that. John 13 verse 35 says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you do what? If you have a culture of love. If you love one another. But they have to see the love. We have to be out there and they have to see it. Psalm 34 verse 8, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. How will the world taste that God is good? How will they see God? They have to see it in us. They'll see God's goodness in us. Micah 6 verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What are you seeing here? Kingdom culture, kingdom culture, humility, justice out there in the marketplace, out there as we transform society. Now, some of you are in a space where you're like, but Paul, there should be set rules. Paul, there should be a set way of doing things like there's this one way of doing it and there's this other way of doing it. I want to close this morning by showing you what cultural agility looks like. How did Paul demonstrate cultural agility? How should we be when we go into the marketplace, when we go out there? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 to 22, it says, For though I am free of all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews now, some people might be there saying, no, 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 Paul, you must always behave in this particular way. But look what he's saying. He's saying, you know what, some of those Jewish cultural things, I did them, not because I had to before God, not because there's a rule that God is saying, do all these things. I did it to win them. Can you see that flexibility? Because other Christians will say, but that's being legalistic. But no, 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 I mustn't do that, my brother. I'm a Pentecostal. Oh, no, 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 that's not grace. That's not grace, my brother. Mm -mm. Can you see what's happening there? But look how agile Paul the apostle was. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew, not, not because I'm bound under law, but I wanted to connect with them. I wanted to win them. To those who are under the law as under the law. Though not being myself under the law. So that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law. Though not being without the law of God but under the law of Christ. Why? So that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Was he sinning? No, he wasn't. These were surface features in the culture. He was not bound when he was doing it, but he was adjusting himself for the sake of the gospel. Amen. My question to you is, how rigid are you? How judgmental are you? How culturally agile are you? Final verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 to 22 it says no but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons not to God and I do not want you to be participants with demons you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too you cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons too are we trying to provoke the Lord to jealousy are we stronger than he so he's got quite a strong stance in terms of what people eat and some Christians are like that right It's like, oh, where did that food come from? Oh, I'll get demons in me. You know that one of the reasons we pray for food and give thanks, the Bible actually speaks of it, is so that it's got no power over us. Whatever's in there, God is much more powerful. Amen? Now, Paul, when he's speaking to certain people, he's guiding them and he's saying, guys, don't partake of some of these things. But look what he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. He says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. Now I want you to watch this very, very carefully, and don't be distracted, please. Watch this very carefully they are Christians who come to me and they say, so what's the church's stance on such and such? And they want just one answer and they're hoping that every single person in the body of Christ does exactly the same thing. But what I want you to know is there are certain things that are fundamental and there are other things the Bible is silent on. And just watch how Paul addresses this. He says, for even if they are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and we exist for him, and, no, uh, and, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple will not his conscience if he is weak be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols for though your knowledge for through your knowledge he, he who is weak is ruined the brother for whose sake Christ died and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak you sin against Christ therefore if food causes my brother to stumble i will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Can you see the issue here? Is there anything wrong with eating that meat? No. But is it going to cause your brother to stumble who's got a weaker conscience? Yes. And you sin against him, so therefore you don't. If you have a friend having a Hindu wedding, and they're having it in a Hindu temple, is there anything wrong with you going to that temple? No, there isn't. But if someone sees you there participating, could it cause them to stumble? And maybe they'll think like, oh, this person worships all gods. Yes, maybe. And you might refrain because of what it does to your brothers and your sisters. Amen. Cultural agility. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask for your wisdom. We want wisdom Lord from heaven. We want to be mature, Lord God. We want to be culturally agile. We want to transform society. We want to see people, all nations everywhere, bowing down to you, Lord. We declare that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, I pray for my brothers and my sisters this morning who are in this interface right now. Some of you have been struggling in this area where you don't quite know how to be as you're interacting with your families, I want to encourage you to re-listen to this message. Ask God to speak deeply to you so that you know how to carry yourself. Father, I pray that every aspect of our culture would be pleasing to you and honoring to you. Father, I pray that you deliver us from being judgmental, Lord. If you are here this morning and you feel like you've tended to be judgmental, You've tended to release judgments very quickly based on things that aren't even in the word of God. I want you to just repent before God right now. You don't have to stand up. But just pray with me. Lord Jesus, I come before you now and I confess to you that I've released judgments. But I renounce that now. I choose to be more understanding. I ask you, Father, to give me your grace. To be culturally intelligent. To be gracious to my brothers and sisters. To understand that I would have been like them if I had been raised in their environment. Father, show me what I need to challenge. And show me what I need to understand. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen.